0: Heavenly Father, God, we thank you and praise you so much that your word is true and that your word is good. Lord God, we pray that you would help us tonight. Help me as I speak, the things that have been prepared, may they be helpful. Above all, may we hear your voice, not mine. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us hearts to listen and to understand and to take in and to be challenged and to go away from here wanting to live more for Jesus and to tell more people about him. Lord, we pray all these things in your strong name. Amen. Amen. As many of you will know, I have had the uh, privilege of being able to work in Africa, in Malawi specifically, quite extensively over the past 10 years or so. And I like to think that I have a pretty good handle on Malawian culture with all its frustrations and its quirks and its beauty. But it is said, or I have heard it said, that you don't really get to know a culture properly until you've given birth there. So by that measure, I'm guessing I'll never know any culture. Which is a shame, but I've seen childbirth and it's a sacrifice I am very willing to make. But the point is a good one. It basically means that you never really get to identify with the depths of a culture unless you have seen or experienced how that culture brings their next generation into the world. It's at those moments when a baby is born that you see the most vivid cultural practices being played out. And and these practices often tell you how that culture views what their children or what that child is expected or hoped to achieve or become. And some of these cultural practices, especially in Africa, in Malawi, are just plain odd, really weird. But in Malawi, the birth culture basically have three main elements to them. Um, Firstly, all different kinds of gifts are brought. Secondly, all kinds of crazy dances are performed. Thirdly, all sorts of songs are sung, often for weeks and weeks after a child has been born, all to show and signify what they hope this child will bring into the world. Gifts represent different qualities they want their child to exhibit. The dancing represents the coming of life and vitality into the village. Songs represent the happiness they hope that child will bring now and in the future. In Malawi, each village and each child in that village has its own cultural birth event tied into that one birth, unique to that one child. And at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, as we've been looking at over the past few weeks, we see an incredibly special birth, a very special arrival with its own cultural events surrounding it, very unique to that one child. And the way that this birth came about and the way that this child was welcomed into the world tells us a lot about what is expected of this child, what this child is hoped to achieve. In Matthew, we've been seeing that this child's coming into the world was noticed by wise men who came to him as a toddler, bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, all symbols that this child, as the Christmas carol says, will be God and king and sacrifice for the earth. That's the expectation placed on this child. In Matthew, we see this child's coming into the world was the spark of a king's murderous rage who wanted him dead signifying that this child will wield great might and will be a threat to earthly power. That is the expectation placed on this child. And in Matthew 3 tonight, we see that this child's coming into the world is not a chance event. It is the fulfillment of hundreds of years of prophecy. It is a birth that was expected This man, Jesus, was foretold by the great prophets of old. As Jesus himself says of his own coming in Matthew 11, all the prophets and the entire law prophesied until John, the man we read of tonight. The whole of history has been expecting this child. And tonight we see why. Tonight, we listen in on the message of John, the last of these prophets, the man whose job it was to announce the coming Messiah and proclaim the reason why Jesus had come into the world. John the Baptist is, if you like, reminding people of Jesus' culture, or to use the language of Matthew 3, verse 2, to remind the people of and to prepare people for Jesus' kingdom. And so, like the trumpeter at the gates of Holyrood House, announcing the arrival of the queen, so John the Baptist is the final royal herald, announcing the arrival of the king. And with this announcement comes the call to be ready for him. And with all that in mind, let's let's read the passage together, shall we? Um, Read with me Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, John wore a, ca- a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you have your service sheets in front of you, um, I'm just going to very, um, as is on the sheet, go through those three points. Keep your Bibles open as well as we go through this text together. My first point is that John the Baptist's message is one of fulfillment. Now, I don't know what you think of this passage when we read through it, but it's a bit hot, isn't it? You know what I mean? It's kind of a bit hellfire and brimstony. It's perhaps a little bit uncomfortable. John the Baptist is not beating about the bush here, is he? He is direct. He's forthright. He's uncompromising in what he says. And he really challenges the religious leaders with a bluntness that would shock Donald Trump. And on top of that, he looks really odd. And all this is very important. John is doing and saying all these things in this passage exactly in the way that we read them here because John the Baptist, both in his manner and in his message, is himself fulfilling centuries-old prophecy. And we can see that quite clearly right from the start, can't we? John is very obviously the fulfillment of Isaiah, Verse 3, the famous prophecy from Isaiah 40. I am the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John, to be fair, doesn't proclaim his message or fulfill this prophetic role with subtlety. He's not trying to hide it from people. He's being incredibly clear. Because not only is John the Baptist fulfilling Isaiah... But he is someone who actually looks like a prophet. And we get that from his bizarre dress sense. Verse 4, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Now, if you were the Jews of the day, seeing a person dressed like that, or indeed if you were a Jew reading this for the first time, you would immediately be reminded of someone else. From a previous description in the Bible that is strikingly similar. And that someone else is found in 2 Kings eight, where we read this description. The man wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist, and he said to them, this is Elijah, the Tishbite. John the Baptist looks like Elijah. Elijah, that great prophet of the Old Testament, The one whom the Jews were waiting for to return. The one whom the Jews held in the highest regard. Word for word, John looks like Elijah the prophet. This is who John the Baptist is emulating, if you like. He's quite literally stepping into Elijah's shoes. He's stepping into Elijah's role. He is the great prophet himself. And that, too, is a fulfillment of prophecy the very last paragraph in the Old Testament, the very last book before Matthew starts, in the book of Malachi, we read these words, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. John is Elijah. And we know as well that we're meant to read that because Jesus himself says so. Again, back in Matthew 11, verse 14, Jesus says to the crowd, If you are willing to accept it, John is Elijah, who is to come. In short, the message of John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, pointing the people to Jesus the King, really shouldn't have been a surprise. The people of God, had they known their Old Testaments, were told someone like John, the reappearing of Elijah, would come and that he was going to point to the promised Messiah. And because John's message is one of fulfillment, because it is steeped in the Old Testament, it's really handy and it's helpful for us just for a few minutes to have a look at one of those prophecies. So why don't we turn together to Malachi? Let's turn to the book of Malachi. It's easy to find. Last book of the Old Testament, um, page 802 in your church Bibles. Malachi, while you're finding it, he was the last writing prophet of the Old Testament, and he probably wrote about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. That's helpful for us, because that's where we are Um, in the morning, so we know what's going on around this time. This is about 450 years before Jesus is born. This prophecy is being written. And let's just have a look at a few verses. Malachi 3, 1 to 3 specifically. Now you can see the prophecy concerning John, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, very much like the Isaiah prophecy. But look at what Malachi goes on to say about the person who this messenger, John the Baptist, will point to. Malachi 3, 1, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, that's Jesus. But verse 2, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Is that not exactly how John the Baptist describes Jesus' kingdom here in Matthew? Malachi's prophecy has that same heat, if you like, that John the Baptist's message has, literally. Literally. Look at the fire language in Malachi, the fire of purification. And look at the fire language in Matthew 3. Turn back to Matthew 3, verse 10. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Verse 11. I will baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In short, who can endure the day of this man's coming? Jesus' birth, the reason for his coming, is not all going to be stardust and light. As Andy said last week, we need to remove the tinsel from some of these Christmas passages a little. Jesus' coming will bring fire, John tells us. A purifying fire, Malachi tells us. Jesus will bring division as he separates wheat from chaff, as he chops down trees that don't bear fruit. In short, this man Jesus is coming with a mission that will shake the world to its core. People will be sifted through a fire hot enough to refine silver and gold, that piercingly white smelting heat. People will be like trees attempting to stand against the bite of the axe. Like damaged grains of wheat trying to escape from the mighty winnowing fork. Who can possibly endure that, says Malachi? Who can stand the day of the Lord's coming? But before you get into answering that question, do you really feel the weight of this? The weight that these passages and these prophecies were meant to carry Are we sitting here tonight feeling comfortable about Jesus? Are we sitting here as Christians comfortable with my Christianity? Or as people who aren't Christians, am I comfortable with hanging out around church, not thinking much about what is being said? Can I honestly say, yes, I think I can stand before Jesus Christ? Are you sitting here tonight thinking, I don't need to stand before jesus christ there's a reason why jesus birth is announced in the way that it is with all the fanfare and narrative and cultural expectation and prophecy and pronouncements is to alert us that this is no ordinary man It's to alert us to the fact that this man is god himself the king of the universe broken into the world as john the baptist says in verse two to usher in the kingdom of heaven there's a reason why Jesus and his kingdom is the fulfillment of centuries of promise. It's to alert us that there is going to be a reckoning with man and we have to be ready for him. Who can endure the day of this man's coming? And with all the prophecy and with all the birth story of Jesus behind me, as I look on the message of the very last prophet, can I still with all good conscience, in my own ability, my own worth, my own goodness, stand before this Jesus and say, I am fine. That's the warning in this passage. That's the warning of Malachi. John's message and his warning is exactly the same. That's why he's an Elijah. That's what Elijah was always warning the people of God about. Jesus' coming is a serious, serious business, says John. Are you ready? And being ready brings us to our next point. And all this is why John is actually directing the message principally at the religious leaders. John's message is not only a message of fulfillment, John's message is also a message of preparation. Read with me from uh, verses 7 to ten. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, this is an interesting little part of this passage. The question is, what's actually going on? At first glance, John seems to be treating these religious leaders unfairly. Everyone else around him is being baptized, and these guys rock up, and, and, and he really turns on them violently. But John has perceived something that is fundamentally different about these Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we see that in the way that he describes them. You brood of vipers. Now, seeing as we're in Africa, let's stay there for a moment. Um, Africa houses, as many of you know, some of the deadliest animals on the face of the planet. I have a particularly engaging story about sharing a bed with a reaper spider. If you want to know more about that, please come up and tell me at the end. But there are many deadly animals. But as many of you will also know, the deadliest animal in the continent of Africa that isn't a mosquito or a disease is not the reaper spider or the crocodile or the lion or the elephant or the rhino. It is the humble hippo. And they are adorable. But they are deadly. They kill more people every year in the continent than any of the others by a long stretch. And that is because they slink under the water, looking all fat and slow and cute. And they get under enormous boats full of people taking their photographs, all harmless and innocent. And then the boats are overturned, leaving the people to drown in open waters or as defenseless prey for other animals. It's quite devastating. Now, that's the accusation that John levels against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You pod of hippos. You deceitful killers. You brood of vipers. The viper in the Middle East was a desert snake that disguised itself as a stick entirely harmless and innocent, but the moment you touched it or attempted to pick it up, it would kill you with a single bite. The viper is a picture of hypocrisy. You hypocrites, John calls them. You look clean and dignified and righteous on the outside, but you're deadly. And the reason for that is in verse 9. You think that because Abraham is your father, you are safe in front of a holy God. Don't presume that that's the case. You see, these men thought they were in God's club. They thought that they were chosen and special as people born into the covenant line of God's people. They thought that their Jewishness was enough to make them spiritually secure. But they didn't really love God. They loved their own lawmaking. These men were privileged leaders at the top of society in Israel. And the Gospels, time and time again, show us how little they loved and how little they cared for anyone outside of their clique. These men were flaunters of good works. They were meticulous keepers of hard laws. They looked great. But they were alienating the outcasts. They were puffing themselves up. They were not protectors of God's people. They were silent killers. And you actually think that you're good enough to be able to stand before a holy God, says John, on those terms. You think Jewishness makes you untouchable... Before God's wrath, you look like you're clean and well dressed, he says, but you're really dirty and unkempt. That's the idea. You look like harmless sticks, but you're vicious snakes. You look like the chosen people of God, but you're frauds. That's the accusation against them. And to these men of hypocrisy, John says, You need to be prepared to meet the king, because at the moment you're not prepared, you're not ready. Be warned, says John, because verse 10 is going to happen. Even now the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. That's you, he says. Don't presume, says John, that your Jewish heritage is enough. It isn't. Don't presume that your clothing is enough. It isn't. Don't presume that your good works are enough. They aren't. You are in danger of being a mighty oak, assumed safe and established and immovable, but ready to be chopped down by the coming king. Are you ready? You see, as much as this passage is helpful for those who don't know Jesus the King about who he is and what he's come to do, those who are looking for Jesus, this is more a warning for those of us who call ourselves Christians. Because the reality is, who are we kidding? Who are we kidding if we're living like these Pharisees? Who are we kidding if we're attempting to look good, um, to keep the law and not love God? Who are we kidding if we are not showing repentance? Furthermore, as churches, who are we kidding if we are not preaching this gospel Who are we kidding if we are not preaching this kingdom, this king to ourselves? The amount of people that we know who are lost because they do not see Jesus for who he really is, as their king, as their holy God. The amount of people that we know and love who are lost because they were fakes who were hypocrites, wolves in sheep's clothing, religious, professing a knowledge of God and yet as far from him as anyone possibly could be. Who are we kidding? John is kidding nobody. Playing fast and loose with the gospel is a dangerous, dangerous game, he says. Not being serious about sin is a dangerous, dangerous game. Standing on my own two feet in front of a holy God with all my self-righteousness is a dangerous, dangerous game. Be prepared for the fact that King Jesus is going to judge. Are we prepared for that here in this room? Are we really ready for that? Do we assume that we're sorted? Do I think, like these Pharisees, that because of my Christian heritage, or the fervor of my preaching or the security of my friendships or the measure of my respect or the way in which I'm seen in the church by others? Do I really think I'm there? Do I think I've made it? Do I think that past performance covers me? Do I rock up to church, say all the right things and then go into the week living entirely contrary to the law of God? Who are we kidding? And if that's the case... We're not ready to meet the king. We're not prepared. And if you're someone who doesn't follow Jesus, are you content with where you are? With who you are? Are you happy with not being beholden to this living, awesome king? You're not ready. Be warned, says John. The king is coming. And, verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Who can stand the day of his coming, says Malachi? Well, no one really, says John. Not even those who thought they really could. Unless, verse 8, we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And that is the crux of John's message. Because what does being prepared actually look like? What does being ready for the king actually look like? Well, it looks like one thing and one thing only, and that is repentance. And that's our third and final point. Jesus' message is all about repentance. Has it struck you why the Pharisees are actually here at John's baptism? That's a really good question. Is it not a good thing that they want to be baptized? Well, to answer that, um, we see the question that John levels at them in verse 7. He says this, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's quite an odd question. In other words, he's saying, who warned you guys that you needed to be baptized by me simply in order to keep yourself safe from God's wrath? The question is digging away at their motive. In short, John is saying, you guys just want to be baptized and to be done with it. You're using my baptism, as, as one commentator puts it, as fire insurance, if you like. You just want to be doubly sure that you're going to get to God in case the fires of hell catch you. You're basically just using it as another work to build up your own righteousness. John says, don't be like that. That's not what baptism is about. Shoring up what you already think you've achieved. Instead, you need to do verse 8. Verse 8. You must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, it's not the activity of baptism per se that protects you from God's wrath. It is the nature of your heart. That's what the Pharisees were missing. They were wearing these robes, living hypocritically because their hearts are not right. You think you're connected enough, he says, clean enough, righteous enough to stand before God. You aren't because you're not repentant. And it is repentance that gets you right with a holy God. But what does repentance look like? Now we can kind of get to this passage, and think very much like a Private Fraser in Dad's Army. We're doomed, and in many ways we are. And in many ways, that's the point. That that's the first step to understanding what repentance is all about. The first step is knowing that I'm lost to know that I'm facing this white-hot refiner's fire without protection. The second step is to admit to the king that the problem lies with me because of my sin, and I really need help. And that is exactly what we see happening in this passage. How do we know that the other people who are being baptized by John are maybe different to these Pharisees and Sadducees? How do we know that these people were repentant? Well, because of 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. The confession of sins. The only way we can confess sin is if we understand that we have sinned. And that my sin is the problem that is leading us to our shame in front of a sinless God. That's what the Pharisees weren't doing. They don't have any sin to repent of, so they assumed. The other people in the passage know they have sin to repent of. Sin that is getting in the way of them being able to know this God, of being able to stand in front of this king. That's repentance. The admission of guilt before a holy God. The acceptance that you are not right with God. The knowledge that you can't stand before this God. The understanding that you are lost without help the willingness to confess, that is to speak out your sin and give it over to this God. And repentance is also the humility to accept the king's incredible forgiveness. And that last point is significantly important. It is said, isn't it, that there are two hurdles to becoming a Christian. The first hurdle is that you need to be forgiven and the second, second hurdle is that you can be. Pharisees here can't jump over the first hurdle. They, they don't see themselves as being sinful, so they don't see themselves as having to repent and be forgiven. They're stuck at the start line. For those of us who are Christians, let us not get stuck at the first hurdle thinking we're sorted, like the Pharisees. For those of us who aren't Christians, don't get stuck at the first hurdle thinking we're okay on our own. You're not. But some of us in this room don't actually have a problem, if we're honest, with the first hurdle, perhaps. Some of you got over that hurdle years ago. You know that you're fallen and hopeless. You feel wretched and sinful. This may be a burden that you carry with you every day, but you feel that there's nothing that can be done about that. You feel that God wouldn't really accept you after what you've done. You really have sinned once too many times. Let me tell you tonight, don't get stuck at that second hurdle. You can be forgiven. How? Because of King Jesus himself. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, says John, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The solution to the problem of being able to stand in front of the king as sinners is the king himself. The one that was greater than the greatest prophet. The king who was to usher in the kingdom of heaven. The one who will do more than John does here, baptizing merely with water, but who will fight fire with fire. The king is someone who will spiritually baptize or wash the repentant heart completely clean, like the fullest soap in Malachi. The king is someone who will spiritually baptize or wash the whole repentant person, making them completely clean, making them pure like that refiner's fire back in Malachi. It is the Messiah king who makes me right before a holy God. And this baptism of fire and spirit, this salvation from God's wrath is possible because, you see, I am not just saved by the act of repentance in and of itself, but I am saved because of the one to whom I repent. Jesus Christ, the Messiah King, who will in three years of this event die on a cross as he carries every single sin that man has committed, who will believe in his name, all born on his shoulders as he stands in the sightlines sight of a holy and powerful God, and he gets crushed in my place. That's how the king is able to offer forgiveness. Forgiveness. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. That's what repentance looks like. That's what being safe in a holy God looks like. That is why peace on earth to all men was sung at Jesus' birth, because through this king, we have peace with a holy God. This message of John is not just a warning, but it is a message of incredible hope. John is not hammering these religious leaders for the sake of it. He is giving these Pharisees a real honest chance to see what their problem is and to show them how it is to be fixed. And he does exactly the same with us too. To those of us who know we're doomed, to those who confess their sin, to those who acknowledge Jesus as a sent one from God, to those who place their hope and their trust and their lives and their dependence onto the crucified Messiah King, to those who accept his forgiveness, peace with God is found. And with that comes the glorious reality that we are now radically new and completely different types of people. Indeed, we become more engrafted into the covenant family of Abraham than these leaders, the actual descendants of Abraham, verse 9. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. We as dead, lifeless stones as Gentiles, with no place in God's covenant promise and no ability to stand before Jesus, we are now alive. Not just in the covenant line of God, but in Christ himself. And that is why we are told to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This is what the Pharisees weren't doing. For those of us who are Christians, are we bearing fruit in keeping with repentance? Are we actively living out the gospel? Are we really serious about sin? Are we honest, brutally honest, in front of people as to how we are really doing spiritually? Are we turning to the Bible? Are we praying every day? Are we confessing our sin, striving for active holiness daily? Because repentance is a daily thing, and it is a visible thing, because we are now in Christ. My life after real repentance now looks radically different. That's what the word repent literally means. To make a 180 degree turn, to go completely in the opposite direction, away from sin and judgment and towards Christ. And so my life should bear the fruit that reflects that change in status and that change in direction. How do we treat each other? In the way that we talk about each other. Because we all recognize that we are all hopeless messes. We all recognize that we are all works in progress. We all recognize that we are in desperate need of the forgiveness of the King, Jesus Christ. We cut each other slack. We help each other in times of desperation. We love each other till it hurts. All because we have all been saved from destruction by the forgiveness of the King. Do not presume tonight do not go to bed thinking you're okay on your own do not miss the opportunity now while he can be found to repent today to acknowledge your sin to ask forgiveness and to follow this king jesus on this new journey of life bearing fruit let's pray together Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so very much for this message of Matthew, the message of the great prophet John. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will be challenged by what we hear. Heavenly Father, I really pray that we would not go out of here not thinking about what has been said, not thinking about what the gospel tells us about who King Jesus is. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be prepared to meet the King, Heavenly Father, I pray that those of us who are really struggling with sin, may we be able to confess it to you. Heavenly Father, those of us who have never spoken to you before, I pray that tonight will be the first time that we give over our sin to you. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would really help all of us as we strive to live lives of godliness. Help us never to presume that we are safe in our own good works. Help us to know and be reassured that we are entirely safe in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your goodness to us. Thank you for this gospel. We pray that you would be with us as we leave here. May we enjoy living out the gospel in front of other people, we pray in your strong name. Amen.